Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 93. The Castaway. It was but some few days after encountering the Frenchman that a most significant event befell the most insignificant of the Pequod's crew, an event most lamentable, and which ended in providing the sometimes madly merry and predestinated craft with a living and ever-accompanying prophecy of whatever shattered sequel might prove her own. Now, in the whaleship, it is not everyone that goes in the boats. Some few hands are reserved called shipkeepers, whose province it is to work the vessel while the boats are pursuing the whale. As a general thing, these shipkeepers are as hardy fellows as the men comprising the boat's crews. But if there happen to be an unduly slender, clumsy or timorous white in the ship, that white is certain to be made a shipkeeper. It was so in the Pequod with the little negro Pippin by nickname, Pip by abbreviation. Poor Pip. You've heard of him before. You must remember his tambourine on that dramatic midnight so gloomy jolly. In outer aspect, Pip and Doughboy made a match like a black pony and a white one, of equal developments, though of dissimilar colour, driven in one eccentric span. But while hapless Doughboy was by nature dull and torpid in his intellects, Pip, though over-tender-hearted, was at bottom very bright, with that pleasant, genial, jolly brightness peculiar to his tribe – a tribe which ever enjoy all holidays and festivities with finer, freer relish than any other race. For blacks, the year's calendar should show naught but 365 Fourth of Julys and New Year's Days. Nor smile so while I write that this little black was brilliant, for even blackness has its brilliancy. Behold yon lustrous ebony panelled in king's cabinets. But Pip loved life and all life's peaceable securities so that the panic-striking business into which he had somehow unaccountably become entrapped had most sadly blurred his brightness. Though, as ere long will be seen, what was thus temporarily subdued in him in the end was destined to be luridly illumined by strange wild fires that fictitiously showed him off to ten times the natural lustre with which, in his native Tolland County in Connecticut, he had once enlivened many a fiddler's frolic on the green – and melodious eventide with his gay ha-ha had turned the round horizon into one star-bell tambourine. So though in the clear air of day suspended against a blue-veined neck, the pure-watered diamond drop will healthful glow, yet when the cunning jeweller would show you the diamond in its most impressive lustre, he lays it against a gloomy ground and then lights it up, not by the sun, but by some unnatural gases. Then come out those fiery effulgences, infernally superb. Then the evil blazing diamond, once the divinest symbol of the crystal skies, looks like some crown jewel stolen from the king of hell. But letters to the story. It came to pass that in the ambergris affair, Stubbs's after oarsman chanced so to sprain his hand as for the time to become quite maimed and temporarily Pip was put into his place. The first time Stubb lowered with him, Pip evinced much nervousness, but happily for that time escaped close contact with the whale and therefore came off not altogether discreditably, though Stubb, observing him, took care afterwards to exhort him to cherish his courageousness to the utmost, for he might often find it needful. Now upon this second lowering, the boat paddled up to the whale, and as the fish received the darted iron, it gave its customary rap which happened, in this instance, to be right under poor Pip's seat. 
The involuntary consternation of the moment caused him to leap, paddle in hand, out of the boat. And in such a way that part of the slack whale line coming against his chest, he breasted it overboard with him, so as to become entangled with it when at last plumping into the water. That instant the stricken whale started on a fierce run. The line swiftly straightened, and presto, poor Pip came all foaming up to the chocks of the boat, remorselessly dragged there by the line which had taken several turns around his chest and neck. Tashtego stood in the bows. He was full of the fire of the hunt. He hated Pip for a poltroon. Snatching the boat knife from its sheath, he suspended its sharp edge over the line and, turning towards Stubb, exclaimed interrogatively, Cut! Meantime, Pip's blue, choked face plainly looked, Do, for God's sake! All passed in a flash. In less than half a minute, this entire thing happened. Damn him! Cut! roared Stubb. And so the whale was lost and Pip was saved. So soon as he recovered himself, the poor little negro was assailed by yells and execrations from the crew. Tranquilly permitting these irregular cursings to evaporate, Stubb then, in a plain and business-like but still half-humorous manner, cursed Pip officially. And that done, unofficially gave him much wholesome advice. The substance was, never jump from a boat, Pip, except... But all the rest was indefinite, as the soundest advice ever is. Now, in general, stick to the boat is your true motto in whaling. But cases will sometimes happen when leap from the boat is still better. Moreover, as if perceiving at last that if he should give undiluted, conscientious advice to Pip, he would be leaving him too wide a margin to jump in for the future, Stubb suddenly dropped all advice and concluded with a peremptory command. Stick to the boat, Pip, or by the Lord, I won't pick you up if you jump. Mind that, we can't afford to lose whales by the likes of you. A whale would sell for 30 times what you would, Pip, in Alabama. Bear that in mind and don't jump any more. Hereby, perhaps, Stubb indirectly hinted that though man loved his fellow, yet man is a money-making animal, which propensity too often interferes with his benevolence. But we are all in the hands of the gods. And Pip jumped again. It was under very similar circumstances to the first performance. But this time he did not breast out the line, and hence, when the whale started to run, Pip was left behind on the sea, like a hurried traveller's trunk. Alas, Stubb was but too true to his word. It was a beautiful, bounteous blue day. The spangled sea, calm and cool, flatly stretching away all around to the horizon, like gold beater's skin hammered out to the extremist. Bobbing up and down in that sea, Pip's ebon head showed like a head of cloves. No boat knife was lifted when he fell so rapidly astern. Stubb's inexorable back was turned upon him, and the whale was winged. In three minutes, a whole mile of shoreless ocean was between Pip and Stubb. Out from the centre of the sea, poor Pip turned his crisp, curling black head to the sun, another lonely castaway, though the loftiest and the brightest. Now, in calm weather, to swim in the open sea is as easy to the practised swimmer as to ride in a spring carriage ashore. But the awful lonesomeness is intolerable. The intense concentration of self in the middle of such a heartless immensity. My God, who can tell it? 
Mark how when sailors in a dead calm bathe in the open sea, mark how closely they hug their ship and only coast along her sides. But had Stubb really abandoned the poor little negro to his fate? No, he did not mean to, at least, because there were two boats in his wake, and he supposed, no doubt, that they would, of course, come up to Pip very quickly and pick him up. Though indeed such considerations towards oardsmen jeopardised through their own timidity is not always manifested by hunters in all similar instances, and such instances not infrequently occur. Almost invariably in the fishery, a coward, so-called, is marked with the same ruthless detestation peculiar to military navies and armies. But it so happened that those boats, without seeing Pip, suddenly spying whales close to them on one side, turned and gave chase, and Stubbs's boat was now so far away, and he and all his crew so intent upon his fish, that Pip's ringed horizon began to expand around him miserably. By the merest chance, the ship itself at last rescued him. But from that hour, the little negro went about the deck an idiot. Such at least they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though, rather carried down alive to wondrous depths, where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes, and the miser merman wisdom revealed his hoarded heaps, and among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous, god-omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense, and wandering from all mortal reason man comes at last to that celestial thought which to reason is absurd and frantic, and weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his God. For the rest, blame not Stubb too hardly. The thing is common in that fishery, and in the sequel of the narrative it will then be seen what like abandonment befell myself. <laughs>